Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 310. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 310 you're listening to. My guest today is producer, engineer, mixer, Steve Evitz, who has worked with the Dillinger Escape Plan, Sepultura, The Cure, Poison the Well, Alisana, The Wonder Years, and many, many others. Steve comes to us as a recommendation from our good friend, Joe Barisi. Thank you, Joe. He hooked us up, and uh, Steve and I had a great discussion, and I'm looking forward to you hearing that. So, Steve Evitz, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about preparing and practicing in the off hours. One of my favorite things to do in my off hours is to pull up old mixes that I've already done for clients and completely remix them from top to bottom. Not getting paid, not gonna hand the mix over to anybody. I'm just gonna take something I've already done and I will strip it down to the raw elements and begin again. And what I get out of that is new ideas, uh, the ability to test out things that I've been thinking about that I just didn't want to implement in a client's mix just yet. It allows me to go down rabbit holes. I can try things. I can stop. I can reset. I can hyper-focus on one area. You know, maybe it's a drum thing I'm working on and I want to try it, but I don't want to necessarily completely finish the mix. I get into the sandbox of the mix, so to speak, and I will just try all kinds of stuff. I've been working on a template system uh, quite a bit lately, so I've been going in and tweaking the template, finding new ways of doing it, uh, adding things, subtracting things, you know, I think you get the point. I get in and I just try stuff off the clock. Now, if you are in one of the other disciplines, uh, game sound, film sound, whatever, I don't know how conducive it is to practice on doing the equivalent, but maybe it's working on your own projects or maybe it's uh, testing out new workflows. Now with COVID, a lot of people obviously are working at home, so maybe it is conducive. I'm not 100% sure since I'm not in those fields. But if there is a way that you too can jump into your own sandbox off the clock where you can just run wild without a client over your shoulder, then it's a great time to exercise any thoughts that you might have of your workflow. Now, if you're a studio owner and maybe you're not spending all your time mixing, but it's really kind of about prepping the studio for client services, for just, you know, taking clients in, maybe this is the time when you have downtime which I'm sure a lot of you unfortunately have, maybe this is the time to explore ways in which you can tweak the studio to be more conducive to your client's workflow. Maybe it's reevaluating where you keep the mics. Some, some people like to toss all the mics back into the mic locker. Some people like to keep all the mics out on stands covered in plastic bags. You know, maybe you have some instruments there that you always put away. Maybe you want to consider putting those instruments out, mic'd up, ready to go for musicians to be able to just jump in really quick. That's something I'm seeing quite a bit lately is studios are just having 
regular setups ready to go so setup time is minimized and people can get down to business. And in particular, drummers, it allows them when you have drum kits, a variety of drum kits available, if you have a core set set up that pieces can come in and out of, having that mic'd up and ready to go presents the drummer with the opportunity to travel lighter and they don't have to, you know, bring a whole kit in and, you know, drummers are tweaky animals and I could say that because I'm a drummer, but, you know, in some cases, drummers like that. The other way to stay prepared, of course, is to absorb music, film, or games that other people are working on. So, you know, if you're in game sound, obviously playing games from other companies. If you're in film, watching film, of course, and naturally music, listening to music. Taking in ideas from other people's work, I think is really informative and can really give you fresh ideas, give you inspiration. And, you know, maybe there's, if you're in music, you know, maybe there's a, a genre that you don't listen to too often. You know, maybe you're a rock person, you don't listen to hip hop too much. Maybe it's time to listen to some hip hop and gather some ideas. Or if you're a hip hop person listening to rock stuff, et cetera, et cetera, I think you get the point. Exercise your brain. Try to get out of your own bubble. Try to find some inspiration. Maybe you're in a, a rut. The whole point is, is get out of your own comfort zone, get out of your own thought process and try on some new thoughts, some new ways of doing things. And I think you'll find that it really benefits the work that you're working on. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I've used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link. 
book me in for an hour on a Zoom call and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffee's in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Steve Evitz here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks Thanks for having me. This is great. You come to us by way of our mutual friend, Joe Barisi. So thank you, Joe, for thanks, Joe. introducing yeah. us. Joe and I have been friends for about 20 years now. Funnily enough, we, we met through a mutual friend, but we met through this other guy, Ben Elliott, who just passed away this past year. Oh. the owner of Showplace Studios in New Jersey that I had worked at and Joe worked at and Joe had known through him and then another guy, Jason Cassaro. And I guess they had done a lot of gear buying stuff together. I know they had bought an old Helios console and like parted it out and they all split it up and hmm. they've been friends. And Joe and I actually incidentally worked on the same record. Joe mixed a record, got fired from it. And then I wound up mixing the record and we don't need to necessarily name the artist, but it was such a crazy experience for a number of reasons that then through Ben Elliott, he said, oh yeah, we talked and it's like, oh yeah, I mixed that same record that Joe mixed. And then he introduced us even just on the phone and we were just basically commiserating on on. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the experience of working on this record. And I was living on the East Coast at the time still. And then one project, whatever, I was out in LA working and I met Joe for coffee and we've been friends ever since. He's a likable kind of guy. He is. He's my kind of person. And he East Coaster originally, no BS, just tells it like it is. And if you don't like me, I don't care. <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> Tell us, where did you grow up originally? Born in Brooklyn till I was 35. I lived in New Jersey, central New Jersey, a town called East Brunswick, which is like smack dab in the middle. It's next to New Brunswick, which is where Rutgers University was. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm an East Coaster, basically. I've been here since, I've been here almost 20 years at this point, or 18, 19 years, whatever it is. But I still really consider myself an East Coaster, even though I can't stand the cold, which is partly why I love being in California. Yeah. Well, I hate snow. Ugh, I can't stand it. Cold weather and snow. No, thanks. My wife loves it. She's the opposite. She's like, I love the winter. I'm like, no, you can have it. What point in your life did you come to the realization that audio was going to play the role that it does? Honestly, it's, it's an interesting story. I've told the story before, but I was, I think, about seven years old. I discovered, I was, you know, like as a kid, I don't know if you ever did it when you were a kid, your parents had an attic and there's all sorts of weird old stuff up there. Yep. I'm just like doing what a kid does and I'm rummaging through stuff, looking at old photos, pulling out the old Super 8 camera and looking at home movies and stuff like that. And there was a old Webcore reel-to-reel tape recorder. It was like a home quarter inch reel-to-reel with the clear plastic reels. Mm -hmm. They were like three inches in diameter or whatever. They weren't huge reels, but they were the small ones. And I was fascinated by the tape machine and, and it had it had the microphone, which was one of those like crystal microphones that stored in the lid. 
It snapped into the lid and it connected with a little RCA cable. I just became fascinated, looked at the diagram and it showed you how to thread the tape machine. So I figured out how to thread it. And then I would just make little home recordings, me and my sister just goofing around, whatever. When you're kids, you just stay silly stuff into the microphone. Or my sister used to take piano lessons and I'd record my sister playing piano. <laughs> and I was just fascinated by it. So that was my early seven or eight, whatever. I, I was pretty fascinated with recording and music. I mean, I loved music always. My mom kind of played piano, but she wasn't. My dad actually taught dance when he was in high school. So there was kind of a musical family in a way. My sister played piano, took many years of lessons. I learned how to play piano just by plinking around on it, kind of self-taught and just trying to figure out like Beatles songs or whatever, my ham-handed versions of an Elton John song or something like that. Did you ultimately end up in, in the school band at all? I did not end up in school band. I thought about it, but I, at the time I had a little bit of performance anxiety, so I never really did it. Mm. But then I, obviously when I was in teenager, then I got into like hard rock and metal and stuff like that and progressive rock and picked up bass and learned how to play and then was in band, high school battle of the bands and stuff like that. But I never was in the school band. It's something I kind of regret because they used to have, which I don't think they do anymore, is the in school, you pick up an instrument, they have you give an elective. I think you're in like third or fourth grade and they used to make you take an instrument. And I took viola and I stuck with it for like, I don't know, maybe a year, but I never really got that good at it or anything. But basic, very, very fundamental understanding of reading music. And then I took, in college, I took a music theory course or whatever, but I never really, I never got into playing in band, in like school band, that is. In your developing years as a teenager and upwards into your 20s, you say you picked up the bass, you started to get into metal. Mm -hmm. Did audio keep pace with those musical interests or did it take a back seat temporarily while you... It took a back seat when I was really just into music and playing bass. And, and it, was, it was very interesting because picking up bass... Growing up, my, my very close group of friends, for some reason, like three out of four of us of like my really tight circle of friends that I hung out with like every day, they all took a bass, hmm. which is, yeah, yeah, you take your head like, huh, really? But they all did. And I didn't. But then my friend was trying to play, and, you know, obviously a very rudimentary version of Spirit of Radio by Rush, just that basic chord progression. And he's playing it. And I'm like, that's not right. And then I grabbed it from him. I said, let me try that. And I figured it out. And he's like, how are you doing that? And I said, I have no idea. I just took to bass very easily, almost instantly. And I still love bass to this day. Well, so when did audio become serious for you? When did it become a reality? Well, when I had my bands really at the end of high school and then I started playing in just the bands I was in and we started to mess around with some original stuff. And then, you know, I was getting tired of the boombox recording, which everybody who probably around my age or your age, I don't know, how, are we, how old are you? I'll be 51 this month. Okay, so yeah, I'm 53. So we're same age, basically. So we all did that. If we were in bands, we did the boombox recording. And then you maybe have to put a, if the boombox is distorted, you put a towel over the microphone so it doesn't distort. You know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> And then I had saw the ad in, I don't know what it was in. It might have been in like a rock magazine, like Cream or one of those, but it was an ad for the Fostex X15. Yeah. It was a picture of the cover of Sgt. Pepper. And they were like, Sgt. Pepper was made on a four track. Here's a four track you can have at home. And yeah. I was like, ooh. And I was a huge Beatles fan. I was like, oh my God, I can make Sgt. Pepper? I was so into it. So... <laughs> I took some of my bar mitzvah money and I went and I got to, went to the local music store in, in East Brunswick and I bought a Fostex X15 and it was awesome. I figured out the basics of it and was just recording. And the cool thing about the Fostex X15 was it could run on C batteries as well as plug in. 
So I could take it outside. I would record my friend playing guitar and then I would record outside and record like a sound effect, like my friend riding his motorcycle down the street as a background noise to my friend playing acoustic guitar, stuff like that. That's and, pretty cool. Yeah. So where did that take you? Where did the X-15 take you? The X-15 took me for a while. I had that one and then I had, I graduated to a different one. It was the Yamaha. It had six tracks. So you could do four tracks and then bounce to stereo of the other two and then free up the four. Hmm. So it was awesome. And that had a little more of extensive mixer. The Fostex was so rudimentary. There was no EQ on anything. Yeah, the Yamaha one. And then I would start really trying to get good recordings with my four track, not really knowing as much about good mic pre's, you know, like obviously the mic pre's and that thing were just awful, but it got the job done. Mm -hmm. And then just being in the band and demoing and then... The band got signed and we had money, we had an advance and I wound up getting, this is 89, I got the Tascam 8-track cassette and a Tascam 208 mixer mm -hmm. and even I had like an Alesis microcomp and a reverb and then I'm like, oh, now it's on, now I'm going to make some <laughs> really cool, now it's going to, this is going to be great, I'm going to make the best things ever. And, you know, I got pretty far, I got made some some really cool sounding things. And actually, the funny thing is my band, after our deal was dropped, we wound up doing this other EP. I started working at a recording studio, the same recording studio that we did our debut record at, Tracks East in South River, New Jersey. We released another EP after the fact, self-released it. Well, with the help of the owner of Tracks East, he made a label called Criminal Records. And we used some of those 8-track demos. And then I transferred some of the 8-track stuff to 2-inch 24, and we overdubbed further on top of it. But some of the actual tracks from the original 8-track recording wound up being used on the EP. Hmm. That's very reminiscent of Chad Blake and Mitchell Froome. And Mitchell Froome, yeah, sure. Doing uh, Latin Playboy stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many great stuff was made on home A-tracks when you think of like that first Eurythmics record? Oh, yeah. It was a lot of it's synthesizer, but it was a home A-track. I think it was a Tascam 38. Reel to reel. Reel You know, I know how it is. You, you, you're playing in bands and you're being exposed to recording on a slightly bigger level than what you're doing at home. Mm-hmm. At any point, did you become burned out on being in the band and want to make the switch to being on the other side of the glass? Well, honestly, once I started doing all the stuff, like I said, I got the four track and whatever and got the bug. To me, it was at that point, I was so into it that it was like, God, I hope the band is super successful so I could build a recording studio. <laughs> that was the be all end all. It honestly wasn't the band. I love playing music. I love music. I don't like all the hurry up and wait aspect of the band thing of playing a gig and the whole day shot leading up to the gig and loading in and then sound check and then you're waiting around for another six hours and then you finally go on stage and you're on stage for an hour and it's awesome. But then you pack up, go home, whatever, or if you're on tour, which we didn't really tour, but very limited. Work hard for 23 hours to have fun for one. Exactly. And to me, I always was super into the writing process. Even when we were writing, the band was writing originals. I was always that guy. I wasn't really a songwriter and I'm still not. I mean, I can write. I write parts. I can co-write. But I was more always the guy in my band. I would work on arrangements. I was doing production 
with my band pre-production more in the way I do it with with bands still to this day. It's just like, wait, stop. All right, what about this? Well, move that kick drum. Let's t- do two kick, not, not one on the one. Go to dump into that. Just simple stuff, little tweaks. And then, what about? Let's cut this part. Let's 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 change the arrangement. I was always that guy in my band to work on the arrangements rather than writing the song. Mm-hmm. In the whole career of the band, which wasn't that long, it was five or six years total. We wrote fifty or sixty songs. I maybe actually wrote like two, mm-hmm. and the rest of it was me just tweaking the stuff that was already there, which looking back now, it's pretty much led me to what I do. I'm assuming that there was some point in your musical recording life where you kind of severed ties with being in a band. Yeah, I did. Our deal went south and we had gotten an advance and then basically like drew salaries from it for a year and a half. Mm -hmm. So we were doing nothing but the band for a year and a half, but then everything went kaput anyway. And I went to Eric Rachel and the other guy, Plinky, was his partner at the time at Tracks East. And I just went there. And when we were doing our record there, I was that guy who I'd probably be annoyed at right now in my turn, but I was the guy in the band. I was the first one there, the last one to leave. I was super into it. I would assist on the on the mix because we were mixing at the time. When we were doing that record, it was totally manual mixing, no automation. So I would get up on the console and I would help ride faders and, and do moves and stuff like that. So I was super into it. And, you know, Eric would give me advice. He was definitely a major mentor in my life. And I would bring him some of my recordings. Every once in a while, I would just stop in because I lived very close to where the studio was. I was only like two towns over. Mm. So I would just come by and just like hang out, go get a coffee with him if he wasn't doing like a big session that day or whatever. And I would play him stuff and he would give me advice or he would critique it and go, oh, it sounds good. or eh, It sounds a little weird here or whatever. So when everything went south, I just knocked on his door and basically went, I have a job. And he gave me a job and it wasn't even like an unpaid intern. I, was, I wasn't really getting paid much, but I was just stoked to be there. I would hang out even if I wasn't scheduled to be on the session. I would just want to be there and just be around it all the time. And he knew I kind of knew what I was doing to a degree. And the first session, literally, he just threw me in there. And it was just a basic vocal overdub session. Right. So it was fine. You know what I mean? I wasn't like, I didn't set up one mic and a preamp and a compressor and done. And obviously it was analog tape and I knew how to operate the tape machine. At least, I mean, it's not that hard to just run basic rewind, stop, play, punch in. Punch in here. Punch in, punch out. Right. Yeah. But he was like, okay, here, patch here, patch here, patch here. Bye. I was yep. like, uh, what? <laughs> yeah. He left. He straight up left. He hung out for like three minutes and then left. And I was like, okay, sink or swim. Here we go. And I didn't think about it, but it, it's amazing that he just did that too. And it wasn't like hanging over my shoulder and making me feel like I was fucking up or or whatever. It was just, see you later. Call me if you need me. Did you ever have moments in those sessions when he left you where a patch point wouldn't work or you couldn't get something to work and you followed the signal path and nothing made sense or, you know, yep. and did you have to call to say, Hey, I'm yeah. I, he was there usually like in the office, just whatever, doing paperwork or doing billing. So if I needed him, I could run and be like, Hey, this isn't working. I don't know what's going on. But for the most part, I understood basic signal flow. So there wasn't really that many times where I couldn't figure it out. But then, you know, that one thing where if you got a room full of people there and arm the track and you don't hear any sound, all of a sudden you're like little beads of sweat starting to form in your forehead. Uh-huh. You're like, wait a minute, hold on. Oh, hang on one second. Keep going. Keep going. Just keep testing on the mic. That kind of thing. Do you remember that feeling 
in those early days where you, room full of people, all of a sudden it feels like the weight of the room is coming oh, down on your head. The walls head, are closing in rapidly. And your heart is starting to beat. And you're like, oh crap, or, or oh it's crap. That, it's like the Hitchcock movie, the thing where they do the zoom in and then it goes pulls. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. I think Martin Scorsese does that a lot in his films where that, like, that kind of... Yeah, it's that. Well, I forget that technique, but these, yeah, it's like that. God, I'll never forget that. <laughs> oh yeah, I would call my my equivalent of your guy, and I'd be like, "Hey, everything's patched. Oh, channel seven. Oh yeah, wiggle the patch cable. Oh, there it is. There it is. Yep. And then I learned, especially with the old the Bantam cables that he had, would have all the brass ends. It's like we need to clean that stuff with Brasso, otherwise. Yeah. So this is all taking place in New Jersey, right? Yep, in okay. South River, New Jersey. What was the pivotal moment that caused you to say, I'm going to California? A number of things. I mean, I always kind of wanted to get out there, and then I wound up working on a couple of projects out here. Hmm. And at, at one point, this is like in 2003, I counted the amount of days that I was at my place in Jersey. Out of a calendar year, I think it was like 24 days out of the calendar year, so... I was like, okay, I think I should move now. Just kind of looking back on that that New Jersey recording experience, what were the takeaways of that time period? First of all, of recording and of business and of career. If you had to sum that up, what would that be? Well, there's so many things tied together because it was, especially then, it was an all analog studio. So the power of commitment was a huge thing. Making records that way, which is just a totally different way of making records now where you don't have to commit to anything. I learned that and I still apply that to what I'm doing now instead of the DAW when, when you're using Pro Tools. And I love Pro Tools. It's great. But it just gives you that option of never being finished with anything. And, you know, a guitar player go, oh, let's save that. I'll do another take and see which one's better. I was like, no, do you like this one that you just did or not? Let's record over it. I don't care. And some people just, they look at me like I have three heads, but it's just like, you grew up making records on tape too, I'm sure. And mm -hmm. it's like, yes or no, we got two tracks open. Yeah, we might be able to go to the other track, but that's it. Yeah. If, if you don't like it, we're recording over it. Yes or no, speak now or forever hold your peace. Yeah. There's no like saving it. Yeah, I always get the, yeah, I really like that. But let me do one more for safety. For safety? What do you mean? For safety, why? What does that mean? Yeah, yeah exactly. No safety. And seeing how, as far as the business side of it, it's just such a different thing now. And I'm really trying to follow the way Joe approaches it, where he just builds by the day, no matter what. And I get projects where it's like, okay, here's, here's what we have. We're going to make a record for this amount. And how many days are we going to spend on this? And sometimes it turns into, oh, you wind up going over by five, six, 10 days, and you're still making the same amount of money. I hate to think of it in those terms, but I'm not independently wealthy by any stretch. And I have overhead. I pay rent on my studio space mm -hmm. and I have been for 15 years. So you're saying that when you came from New Jersey, you hadn't had that kind of approach? No, from Jersey I did. But then when I went independent oh, and just the way the, the music industry had shifted, especially because I've done my share of major label projects with big budgets, but primarily my work has always been in the indie world and it's always been small budgets. But when we did stuff at Trax, my old studio, it was just, here's the day rate. That's it. You need more days? You got to come up with more money. Yeah. And you don't want to make it about the money. And I've never made it about the money, but there's the point of diminishing returns. Yeah. yeah. When you came to California, was there a culture shock for you at all? Or were you 
fairly open to what you were experiencing as, as an East Coaster? There was a little bit of adjustment for me. Mm-hmm. Also a little more of a laid back and a little slower pace to the point where some people think I'm hyper here. <laughs> but, and I'm like, I'm not hyper, I'm mellow. You should see some of the people I grew up with. Was it difficult getting your landing in California and getting work and getting established? No, because at the time... I had, with that record that I met Joe on, I also met Ross Robinson, the producer, who at the time was a, one of the top-level guys. He did that corn, Limp Biscuit, and like mm. he was he was on a, on a high. He just finished the first Slipknot record. And we hit it off right away, Ross and I. And he's like, oh, you don't have a manager? And he hooked me up with his manager. And I had one phone call. I was mixing the record at Electric Lady, and guy just got John Reese, who was my manager for like eight years, nine years almost. He just hops on the phone. He goes, "Hey, bud. Oh yeah, Ross says you need a manager. Okay, I'll be your manager. All right, I'll get you. Ba- I'll get you bigger gigs, and uh, I'll get you more money. Okay, bye. Okay, I guess I have a manager now. That's how it worked. That's literally what happened. It was literally a two-minute conversation. Hmm. Any contract? No. John never worked with a contract. Obviously, contracts for the gigs themselves, but but not between you two. Not between us. No. Tony Maserati does that. Mm-hmm. He's like, if I get screwed, I'm leaving, and you don't have my you don't have my business anymore. Yeah, yeah, it was great. I've worked with a couple of guys subsequently because John kind of got out of the industry. Mm-hmm. He didn't drop me. He literally just got out. He started doing like uh, concert promotion stuff, and then wound up hooking me up with the next manager. But besides one guy, everybody else has been no contracts. They're just like, no, I, if I do my job. We'll make money. It's like, great. Do you think that that is a necessary thing? Yes and no. As producers, a lot of time we do get most of our own gigs, mm-hmm. but it doesn't hurt to have a guy to be a buffer and to kind of be the bad guy, so to speak, because some people, they don't need it. But for me, I feel a lot of times it's necessary because it can be very weird to start negotiating with the artist you're about to get intimate with so to speak, when you're really working on like a long-term project together, because it gets very intimate. You're dealing with emotions and creativity and, and egos and, and all that stuff. And if you're dealing with the money thing, at least in my head, it always felt like icky to me to be like, after I negotiate, it's like, okay, now I'll work on your record after we agreed on what you're going to pay me. Yeah. But the, the daily rate thing that Joe talks about, it makes it a lot more cut and dry. And I'm really trying to switch back over to that mode When you came to California and you got established and were there mentors even after that point that came into your life? Yeah. I mean, Joe, to me, I consider Joe a mentor to me, actually. Just I'll always bounce ideas off of him. He's always a good sounding board. And also Ross is another one. He was a mentor to me in a different way because uh, just learning, because I was a producer, I've been a producer, engineer, mixer, but I always consider myself more of an engineer and a mixer first rather than a producer. Mm -hmm. I learned a lot with Ross just watching him coax performances out of people. So as far as that and as far as interacting with the band on a more of an an emotional level as opposed to a technical level, because I was always very more technical Mm. when I first started out. And I think that's evolved over the years. And it's also just experience and learning how to soft pedal things sometimes and how to to just weave yourself in within the framework of a, especially of a band framework where it's sometimes it could be very volatile when you're dealing with creativity and stuff like that. So you're kind of walking right into my next question, which is what are your thoughts on to others when it comes to dealing with artists and, you know, making sure that you give them the best experience they can get, but also 
at the same time furthering your own career? Yeah, well, to me, you can't give the thought about doing it to further your own career no matter what. You have to just do the right work. And I think if you do the right work, it's going to further your own career because they're going to have a great experience because you're helping them achieve the best possible result for what they're doing. You're trying to help them be the best version of whatever it is they where they are at the time. Mm-hmm. And I think if you accomplish that, they're going to have a great experience. They're going to talk to other people. Ah, man, we just recorded with Steve. He's awesome. That's going to further my career rather than like thinking about it just as the end result of furthering your career. It's just really do the work and do the great job. And then the work should come or the career thing that's going to fall into place. Because if anybody has a shitty experience, that's like a cancer. That stuff will grow. Like, don't ever go to Steve, man. He's a jerk. That's never going to do any good. Do you have a family? I have a wife and a dog. Just newly. I just actually, I just got married uh, in August. Well, congratulations. Thank you. We've been together for a long time. We've been together nine years, but we finally just, and we've been living together for six, but we finally actually just got hitched. And what does your wife do? My wife is in uh, marketing. She works for, in a totally different industry. She works in the grocery industry. She works for Albertsons. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. She does digital marketing. How have you managed the work-life balance thing with the two of you? It can be tough, but the, the great thing is that I have a very loving, supportive wife who does her own thing. And in the past, <laughs> <laughs> I've definitely torched relationships because of my work, because I love what I do. And sometimes it requires me to be here for 12 hours or 14 hours. And sometimes I have to work through the weekend. I don't try, I try not to now, but sometimes it's necessary. And then I've had other people where it's like, what do you mean you have to stay? What do you mean you're working 14 hours? What do you mean you're not gonna, you're coming home at two in the morning? What are you doing? I'm like, I'm working. Normal people don't work till two in the morning. <laughs> exactly. She gets it and she's always gotten it, which is great. If I hang around her too much, she's like, don't you have somewhere you got to be? <laughs> which is perfect. It's yeah. like, it works out. It works so great for both of us. And it's like, she's independent. We love our time together. We cherish each other and it's great. Yeah. Uh, but she definitely loves when I'm not there sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Having an independent partner is, it works for me. My wife is very, mm-hmm. she's got her own life in a whole separate industry. Yeah, exactly. Because if you have a wife who needs you home, this is not the industry to be in. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it, and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro-looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. 
There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. Let's talk about the unfun topic, money. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Do you consider yourself a a spender or a saver? I mean, I'd like to consider myself a saver, but (laughs) with studios, part of the problem is you wind up spending a lot. Yeah. That's for damn sure. Oh, let's just reframe it. It's reinvesting. Yes, that's re- it, it. I mean, it is to a degree, but it's like unless you're buying a lot of vintage gear, mm-hmm. it's not reinvestment. You're investing in your business for tools necessary to complete a job. But I have a few vintage pieces that ten years, twenty years down the run- line, if I retire, then they'll be worth more than what I paid for them. But then I've got other stuff where it's like, oh, is that going to be worth? It's not going to be worth more. It's going to be worth less. Yeah, those and plugins are not going to go up in value. They're definitely not. Those plugins are definitely not going to go up in value. I was listening to your the newest, the, the Sheps one, mm. episode 300, and one of the newer ones. But the Sheps one was great. And he's like, yeah, so he sold out that whole oh my God. studio in just one fell swoop. And it's like, all right, there you go. There's your retirement plan. Yeah. Take that money and go put it in a safe place. Mm-hmm. What's your advice to other audio professionals? What do you What do you think is a good approach to handling yourself financially in the world of audio? I mean, a big part of it is really knowing and believing in your worth. Mm. Because I still struggle with it, and I have somewhat of a, a notable career, not anywhere at the level of someone like Joe, but I definitely have a name for myself, and I'm I'm very grateful for it. But I still especially this year has been, obviously has been a a doozy. Mm. This is the worst year I've had financially in 20 years, which is crazy, but I've barely done any tracking. I've done a couple of track. I just did a tracking session. You know, we're all wearing masks, whatever in the studio and my control room is not that big. So it also kind of like makes me a little nervous Mm -hmm. to have too many people in there, but I was been basically just mixing and I had, I had a decent amount of mix work this year, which is great. And it's all remote. So it's fantastic. But it's also a struggle when the you know people are going oh well we don't have a lot of money and what and it's like to be able to just stand up for yourself and also partly be ready for it to go away because if I'm going to make a do this thing for for this much it's going to cheapen my overall value and then someone else will come along and go hey I heard you did this for this mm. you know the struggle <laughs> it's the oh what's the oh I've seen the the million memes now with like the audio memes on like Instagram and stuff like that and it's the standoff and one guy goes what's your budget and the other guy goes what's your rate <laughs> <laughs> the eternal struggle yeah and knowing your worth and knowing your value and like just being like okay I'm, this is what I'm standing up for and this is the line in the sand and if it goes away it goes away but then you think about something like this like this year and the pandemic it's like am I going to work in two months I don't know you know what's going on and then it's like well 
crap, I got ex- bills, I got fixed expenses, I got to pay rent, I got to pay insurance, I got to pay on the studio, I got to pay for, for gear repair, I got to pay for electricity. Should I just take something right now just to like pay the bills mm-hmm. and be happy and be thankful? So that that's a that's a huge thing. I noticed I was looking at your Wikipedia page and the thing that stuck out to me is that you mm-hmm. have a lot of repeats, a lot of a lot of clients who come back to you. Yeah, I have a, I have a decent amount. I've had been fortunate and it goes back to what we were talking about. If you're doing your job and you make the experience, you should have some repeat clients. I mean, I'm I'm not going to say, "Oh, every client should always come back to me." Because, mm-hmm. you know, it's the artist's prerogative and you want the artist to maybe... So I've had things where I've done three records, four records in a row. And by the fourth record, third record, it's like, eh, you, l- looking back retrospectively, I go, eh, maybe they should have went somewhere else. Or just me, like, because you're too comfortable with the artist and you get to know them too well and you, you know their tendencies. And you're basically, you find yourself going to the same well of tricks or techniques instead of being inventive that it's it's the job of like when, especially when you have repeat clients to try and keep things fresh and do things differently every time to a degree there should be a continuity but if you just fall back on the same tricks then it's not exciting for anybody you know because when you have a client and you do the first thing and everybody's excited and you're excited and it's like there's nothing like that all those little moments of discovery where you're just like oh my god look what happened when we just interacted that in that way and look what we just made and it's like this is great and the next time you do it you go oh oh, I know he's going to do this a certain way. So, oh, we'll just do this. And you fall back on certain tropes and certain little techniques. But the point is just to always make it the best experience and it's going to help your career. And the the main thing always is, and I've always said to every band, like when I'm in pre-production, the first time I meet with a band, meet up and I always tell them, it's like, look, this is your record. This is not my record. And I'm going to throw out ideas here and you can tell me to fuck off. And I won't get upset because I'm not making this about me. It's about you. I'm just trying to, I'm throwing out ideas. Hey, what about this? What about this? What about this? And we're just trying to make the best possible thing. I'm just trying to do anything I can to maximize what you guys do and make it the best version of that. What are the challenges in making records with people? One of my challenges personally, if I'm doing the full thing, like Cruise Record Mix is my biggest biggest bugaboo is mixing a record that I produced myself Hmm. and it'll come out great in the end, but I torture myself. If I'm mixing someone else's record, I have the easiest time mixing and I love it. But I think because it's the outside perspective, I can easily, it's just the same way of producing it. Like why why a lot of bands shouldn't self-produce because it's the same thing because you're so close to it. And you don't have perspective. And when I mix someone else's stuff, I have tons of perspective and I just pick up the fader and I'm like, oh, but when I do something that I've been working for six weeks on and then it's like time to mix, I just mentally torture my, I beat myself up <laughs> until I finally get, th- I get there. But it's one of those things where I've always struggled with it to a degree. And I think it's, it's all self-inflicted torture. <laughs> and in your career, have you made any, come to any realizations or made any mistakes that taught you very particular lessons. Yeah, tons. And it, it comes to a, a, a few bands knowing in mind, almost in a way where the thing I just talked about was a little to my detriment, where it's like, this is the record you want to make? Fantastic. Let's make it. But then they make the record and it's like a left turn for the band. And the band 
I don't want to name specific names, but uh, there's a couple in in mind. And the band made a record, and they're like, "We don't want to do this kind of music anymore. We're gonna we're gonna totally shift it, and we make a different record." And it wasn't the record I even thought I was signing up for. And I'm like, "You sure we want to do this? Maybe I should have been he- more heavy-handed in certain things. Like, I think this is a mistake. It's more about that than than saying like I should have like forced them to do it, but really made my point clear. Like, are you a hundred percent positive? Because I think this might be a mistake." Mm-hmm. The band would then, they put out a record and they got like completely roasted by their fan base, which was pretty extensive at the time. And then they went back to their old style and kind of threw me under the bus in the press. But I kept my mouth shut because it's like, I mean, to my close friends, I'd be like, I didn't make them make that fucking record. They wanted to make that record. I didn't make them write those songs. I'm not a songwriter. I'm not that kind of producer. So they did it, but I get it. Somebody has to be the fall guy and to rectify themselves in their fans' eyes, they're not going to be like, we fucked up. They're going to be like, oh, this producer we work with, you know, yeah, it was a mistake. And they, you know, they went back and then subsequently the band's bigger than ever and it's great and they recovered. Thank goodness. Mm-hmm. But I've also been on the other side of that where I've I've worked with bands that have done the, the opposite way and then they came to me to rectify the situation, quote unquote, rectify it. So... I've I've seen both sides of it. Do you ever burn out on on this business? <sighs> yes, I I do. But then it's like that Godfather quote, Pacino was like, "Just when I think I'm out, they bring me back in." Mm-hmm. Where he says, "You know, I'll get burnt out, or I'll get really bummed, and then I'll work on something, and then I'll it'll, it'll hit that moment, especially when it's it's that same thing. It goes back to like me being in a band, being in the in the practice room." working on a song and then like all of a sudden I always call it the moment of discovery there's something that changes and everybody in the room lights up mm-hmm. and they go oh well what about this chord and, they go, and everybody goes oh my god that's oh my that's so awesome and I get goosebumps and I'm right back in because that still is to me music is just such an unbelievable thing to me and uh, you know some people listen to music to listen to it like eh, it's like yeah I put it on I dance around whatever you know it's fun but I've always felt such a deep connection to stuff where a certain chord or a certain melody or a vocal line and then like the hairs in your arm stand up and it's just like oh, this is the greatest thing ever and whenever I catch those moments I'm right back in it and it's just like how great is this and how lucky have I been for close to 30 years to be able to do this it's interesting we always talk about artists and you know, artists are sensitive and they're they're this, they're that, and they they really they enjoy what the fans can bring to them, the uh, the admiration. Mm-hmm. But I think, and tell me if you disagree with, I think truth be told, those of us who do work in music as as audio professionals, we're just like them. We like to be told, it sounds great, it feels great, I love it. Oh, you did you did a great job. You know, the mix mm-hmm. sounds good. Oh, you produced well, who does, this. Yeah, who doesn't love to be told that they're, they're awesome or what they're doing or like they did a great job on something or you know what I mean? And we get those, we get to have those little moments of affirmation at all times, you mm-hmm. know, and, and even even to ourselves. Like I said, when you're listening to something and listen back to something that we I worked on, and it's just like, man, we did that. How cool is that? Mm-hmm. Like that's just that's just the greatest thing ever, and it's just a, it's such a gift, and it it keeps giving back. Now that said, how do you deal with rejection or negative reactions from your contributions? How do you deal with I don't want to call it failure because it's not that. It's just how do you deal with the negative feedback, especially now and <laughs> now in in this day and age of comment threads on any kind of social media or internet, there's always going to be that. Mm-hmm. 
when I first started, you really didn't see that except you saw maybe you read a bad review in a zine or, or something. You can't take it personally. And there's still times where I'll read something and be like, what is this guy crazy? You know, like, fuck him. <laughs> fuck this and guy. Yeah, fuck this. Fuck the FTG. Fuck that guy. You know, like, <laughs> but everybody's going to have their opinion. Opinions, that's that's what, that's an opinion. It's not a fact. It's an, it, You have to just straight up remember that. Mm-hmm. And it's hard in, in this day and age of the internet. Opinions are not facts. Opinions are opinions. And that's it. Yeah. I like coffee, but some people hate coffee. Yeah. Oh well, yeah. Well, I'm with you there. It's just, it's just, it's just the thing where, on the internet, it's like you like coffee. You're a fucking fascist. It's like, uh, <laughs> excuse me, <Right>. what? <laughs> you know, like. Yeah, I've really, I've pulled back from social media in such a huge way. Oh my god, forget it. And you know, it's that necessary evil too, because I force myself to post sometimes, and I don't want to post because, first of all, I've never been the guy to like, be look at me and brag about anything I've done. Mm-hmm. If I post something about like a band, like the Wonder Years, you know, top 10 record, whatever, the one the last one I did with them in 2015, I post it because congratulations to those guys. You know what I mean? And I'm proud of like the thing we accomplished together, but it's not like, hey, check me out. I hate the, hey, check me out thing of it. But, you know, also you need some of that to, to be visible to people. And it's partly, that's advertising. And also <laughs> album credits, where are they now? That's still a thing. And I don't even know if that petition is still around to get Spotify and everybody to put credits on streaming services, but it's crazy. It's like nobody, it's like, oh, you did that record? It's like, yeah, nobody knows about what records we do anymore. It's like crazy. Unless we brag about it on social media, unless the band tags you on social media. Yeah. You know, and I have to like sometimes feel like a jerk to make sure to go to the band or go to the band's manager. Hey, can you make sure you tag me on that, you know, on the release thing? Yeah, that's that can be an irritating thing when like the band's trying to promote their thing. Yeah. And you played a major part in that. And yet mm-hmm. your contribution is not publicly recognized. Yeah, and you know, and it used to be that, especially in a lot of the thing I, stuff I worked in, which is like the punk and metal scenes, it's like you had the bands and the musicians who were vociferous, ravenous readers. Like they scour the liner notes, which is what I did too when I was a kid. You know, like, yeah. oh, who did this record? Who produced this record? Oh, ooh, this is cool. Oh, what studio is that at? Oh, awesome. And that's how work begets work. That's how it used to be. And it still does, but how do you know? It's like a tree in the forest. Like, how do you know how to get it out there? See, that's interesting. I mean, you and I grew up in a time where that was part of the ecosystem. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, who's Martin Birch? Oh, uh, right. That's the that, best. one you, of the best. You know, speaking who's of Martin Iron, Birch, only one of the best. Only one of the best. <laughs> who's no longer with us? Rest in peace. I know. But, rest in peace, Martin. But, and, you know, reading album covers and doing all that. But it's different, and I don't want to sound like the old man, like, oh, it's not the same. So we have to adapt, and we have to promote course, ourselves to. sometimes. You have to be proactive. Would Would you agree? I 100% agree, and it's to my detriment that I don't post more. Mm-hmm. And I was never I was never a guy, like, the L.A. scene is like, I was never that guy to, like, get out and schmooze and go to the shows. When I find myself doing it, or I did before the pandemic, it usually turned out well, and it worked. It's, it resulted in something. Something came out of it, generally, all, mm. a lot of the times. Not all the time, but a lot of the times. And then I go, why don't I do that? Because the thought of going out and just, it always felt icky to me, like the schmoozy guy, mm-hmm. the guy that's always around, like, hey, and oh, he was that guy. Oh, he's a music producer. I never liked that 
aspect of it. I just want to do good work and let the work speak for itself. Mm-hmm. But again, it's like tree in the forest. Like you could do great work and you, you could be a, the most amazing recording engineer in the world. And if you toil in obscurity, what's, what's going to happen to it? I'm going to say a word here, word association thing. And you tell me what comes to mind. Oh boy. <laughs> Retirement. If we're just doing one word, I'll just say never question mark. Does it cross your mind that that is something in, that you want to do in the future? Do you envision that for yourself? Sure, but I still, 30 years in, I still love what I do. Mm-hmm. And I can't see myself not ever loving it. And who knows what will happen in 20 years, like, you know, how the hell we'll be, we'll be recording, but I still love it. And what are the things that you see younger up-and-coming producers, engineer, audio professionals, people working in the world of music, mm-hmm. what do you see that they're doing wrong? <sighs> well, wrong is a subjective term because... If the old cranky man in me would say they're all doing it wrong because they're <laughs> they're all doing it with just chopping things up and fixing everything and not getting performances and not learning how to actually coax a real performance out of somebody and it's just making it about themselves. But that having said that, there's been lots of amazing music done in that fashion. It's just not something that I'm necessarily interested in doing. Mm, damn kids. But there are, there's a few young, up and coming young guys that are doing it the right way again. Mm-hmm. And it's refreshing and it's great. And I'm like, thank God somebody's got the right idea. Yeah. There's a lot of great stuff that, that's coming out. Yeah, there is for sure. But the thing is, and there's always nature abhors a vacuum. There's always going to be new techniques and new people that are going to do, take the technique and use it the right way mm-hmm. and do something creative and interesting about it. It's my, my thing is the apparent laziness of a, a majority of people and not really doing the proper work and not knowing how to even like mic something up and get a good sound. Mm-hmm. And just doing everything with an amp sim or doing everything virtually. And not to say that there's anything wrong with that per se, but it's not something that I'm that interested in. (laughs) The audience can't see this, but Steve's got a bunch of heads behind him of uh, amps and heads. Yes, quite a few. (laughs) Yeah, so I I can tell you're not an amp sim fan. No, but I mean, I actually, I'm, I got contacted by the STL Tones company to make an, an amp pack, which I'm going to do. It's a good tool to have and it's great for, you know, you're doing stuff and you're writing at home and you don't want to, you need something and you're, you're working. It's, it's a fantastic thing and you can get a good simulation of something, but I wouldn't use it as a primary thing ever. Hmm. But then again, you never know. Never say never. That's right. Because, you know, I've mixed a couple of records that the guitars are on amp sims and they wound up coming out awesome. So... Who the hell knows? Well, so where can people find out more about you if they want to look you up? Really just, there's my Instagram. It's just Steve Evitz. I don't really do the Twitter thing or Facebook. It's really just Instagram, mm-hmm. steveevitz.com, the website. Actually, I need to retool my website, which is another thing to keep on the business side of it. And you can also go to selftitledmanagement.com and look up my discography up there. That's the management company, John Minardi. Excellent. Well, Steve, thank you so much for hanging out with me and answering my my questions. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. I really love the podcast. I listen to it. I listen to a lot of them now after I got turned on to it. Because, again, talking about music and, and working, everything like that, I do not listen to, generally, I don't listen to music in the car driving home from the studio. Yeah. Everybody goes, you don't? I'm like, 
No, I just worked for music on music for 12 hours, and now I want to listen to people talk. I don't want to listen to music in the car. <laughs> so usually find good podcasts, and you, yours has been great. It's really been awesome to hear a lot of guys' perspective on the industry and a different side of it, not really talking about the gear thing, which is I've done plenty of them, and they're great, but this is, this is a, a lot more of a, a philosophical approach to it, which I really like. Yeah, it's NPR meets the pro audio world. Yeah, I love it. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> well, happy to be your companion in the car. Glad you're listening. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Steve Evitz here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Want to thank the crew, Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith there at the top of the show with his amazing voice. Connect with me on LinkedIn, and as usual, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio... This is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.